Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Oh, the foundations may be shaking and the upright may be the target of the unrighteous, but God is still on his throne and he will remember his own. Though trials beset us and burdens distress us, he'll never leave us alone. And the mind that's fixed there, trusting in God, will know a perfect peace. Welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy, pastor of Kindred Community Church in Anaheim Hills, California. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Recently, our world has been rocked to the core. Pandemics, and wars, and natural disasters, and some of us are still waiting for things to return to normal. It's the perfect time for a study of the Psalms of Trust. Today, Pastor Philip looks at how King David reacted to fear and uncertainty in Psalm 11 with a message called Fight or Flight. If you missed the first segment, you'll find it online at ktt.org. Now here's Pastor Philip. You know, some years ago, the British novelist J.B. Priestley was invited to write a short article on the theme of religious beliefs. Interestingly, he declined the offer. And here's what he said. He said, you know what? If I was to write this article, I would emphasize more of my denials than my affirmations. I'm not the right person to write this article at this time. Then he said this wistfully, I regret this because now is the time for gigantic affirmations. I love that. And in the middle of this coronavirus, in the middle of a world that's confidence has been shaken, where men are making their best guesses but can't guarantee anything, in the midst of this confusion, in the midst of this fear, in the midst of this growing anxiety and pandemic, This is a time for great affirmations. And we're coming to look at another one of them in Psalm 11. So if you're taking notes, I hope you've got your Bible open. I want you to see, first of all, what I call the counsel. The counsel. This is verses 1 to 3. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string. They may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Panic launched this psalm. Let me say that again. Panic launched this psalm. From what we can tell, either an inner circle of David's friends or his political advisors had told him, with the best of intentions, by the way, I think this is well-meaning. In their mind, it makes complete sense. Hey, the kingdom is being threatened. Your life is being threatened. The foundations are being shaken. Evil men lurk in the shadows. Assassins. If we can't save the kingdom, let's save the king. And they encouraged him to flee like a bird to the mountains. That was the counsel that was given. David knows this temptation. He has thought about it himself at times, and now either political advisors or an inner circle of friends are reminding them of its wisdom. That's the timeless temptation. Do we go or do we stay? Fight or flight. That's the, the counsel given to David. Flee like a bird to the mountain. 
well-intentioned, but David decides to not heed it. Which brings me to our second thought, what I call the conversation. Following the counsel from his friends and advisors, well-meaning, well-intended, and you can make an argument in some ways even justified, David disregards what he considers to be demoralizing advice. He perceives it as the voice of fear rather than the echo of faith. Now, David challenges the voice of fear. Why do you say to my soul? Or how can you say that? And you know what? You and I need to take a lesson from this. It's the thought that Martin Lloyd-Jones has argued and it's been quoted many, many times. You know what? Don't let yourself talk to you. Talk to yourself. Start reminding yourself that all things work together for good. Start reminding yourself that you live between the hedges of God's providence and no harm touches you except within the will of God. You know who did that? Christenstam, the great archbishop of Constantinople, where he ministered from AD 398 to 404. People flocked to hear him. He was known as the golden tongue. He was eloquent in his criticism of those in wealth and power. He was twice banished by the authorities from his parish. And he often talked to himself. I'm going to let you in on one of his conversations. Listen to himself. What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth and all its fullness is the Lord's. Will it be the loss of wealth? But we have brought nothing into the world and we can carry nothing out. Thus all the terrors of the world are contemptible in my eyes and I smile at all these things. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, death I do not shrink from. He's having a good old conversation with himself in the light of the gospel. Brings us to our last thought. So we've got the counsel and we've got the conversation. In the time that remains, let's look at the confidence that marks David. His confidence is in the Lord. So that's where the psalm begins. The word or the name Lord is the emphatic in the Hebrew. That's the first thought in this psalm. The Lord, I've made him my trust. The Lord is where I'm going to seek refuge. David's got the Lord on his brain. That's where his mind is fixed. And the mind that's fixed there, trusting in God, will know a perfect peace. Listen, David doesn't dispute what his friends saw, but he saw something more. There was danger. Maybe the better part of valor is to live to fight another day. He was thinking that out. But then the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, things about the Lord grip his heart. And in the providence of God, following his conscience, he decides to stand. And he tells us certain things about the Lord. Let's run through these quickly. You're taking notes, several things. God rules. That's the first thing that helps him. That's the first thing that steadies his feet. God rules. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple, and the Lord's throne is in heaven. Got to love that. See, he saw something more than what his friends saw. They saw the circumstances. He looked above the circumstances, and he saw a transcendent throne. And one who sat on it. Sovereign, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign of the universe, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who sets the boundary of the oceans, the one who opens his hand and all of creation is fed. Oh, the foundations may be shaking and the upright may be the target of the unrighteous, but God is still on his throne and he will remember his own. Though trials beset us and burdens distress us, he'll never leave us alone. That's where David's at. With things totally out of control, David was reminded or reminded himself that things were never under his control. They never are, my friend. Sometimes we get a perception they are, but they're not. When our health is good, when we have a bit of money in the bank, we've kind of got that sense, hey, we've got life nailed down. No, you don't. And life will soon show you that. Life was out of control. It was never under his control, but he reminded himself it's under God's control. God hasn't lost control. All things are working together for good. I was listening to a message by Tim Keller this week on Psalm 11 that was excellent. And one of his points based on verse four was this, stop trying to rule the world. Stop trying to rule the world. Take control of your fears. Talk them out before the Lord specifically. Disrobe them. Make them look silly standing naked before a great and mighty God. One you can trust. One who's in charge. The one who at no point in this crisis has got up from his throne and taken a break from ruling the universe. You can stop ruling the universe. It never is under your control anyway. Our breath is in his hands. Our times are in his hands. In fact, in that sermon, Tim Keller referenced the fact that in many a car, when especially boys, but sometimes girls, when they're in their car seat, some parents have bought them this little plastic steering wheel. Have you seen that? A little false dashboard, and they attach it to their chair in the car. And there's dad up front or mum up front driving the car in the minivan, and the little one that's at the back living the illusion that they're driving the car. It's an illusion. In times like this, remind us it's an illusion. God's in the driver's seat. We're in the passenger seat. Secondly, not only God rules, God reviews. God reviews. God may be in heaven. And that may speak of distance. And you and I could conclude, you know what? God is removed. He's in the third heaven. He's way up there, way out there. And his rule seems at times detached and, and, and maybe cold. It's not. It's warm. It's real. It's passionate. It's incessant. It's ongoing. Because look at the next verse. For the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of man. The Lord tests the righteous. God's not inactive. And by the way, God's not inattentive. No. God is in heaven and he's doing whatever pleases him. And he's watching. Proverbs 15, verse 3 tells us, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, beholding the good and the evil. And God looks upon the righteous. Did you notice that? David has this particular emphasis here that his eyes behold the sons of men, but he tests the righteous. He's observing us. He's weighing us. He's watching our reactions during this whole crisis. Are we acting in fear? We're acting in faith. 
Are we hedging our bets? Are we lacking in trust? Are we supporting God's work? Are we walking by faith? Are we carrying on the best we can, even with some risk and bravery for the glory of God? God's watching, he's testing, weighing, and he's especially weighing the righteous. Here's a thought for you. All disasters are tests. All disasters are tests. That's the language, isn't it, of James 1, 2, and 4? That's the language of 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, where he tests the genuineness of our faith. The furnace tests the quality of the metal, the purity of the gold. Isn't that Job's point? He's going to test me, and when I'm come forth, I shall be as gold. The furnaces, the disasters, the trials of life, they're all tests, my friend. You and I are being tested right now as Christians. God's watching, and he's weighing our every response, every attitude. Is it fear? Is it faith? Are we being sheepish? Are we being bold? Are we striking a balance between obeying man and obeying God? And do we know that difference? You see, the devil tempts us to destroy our faith. God tests us to develop our faith. Take the test. Every morning we need to open our blue book with pencil in hand and take the test. I wonder what God's trying to teach me. I wonder what God's trying to teach you. Troubles and trials expose sin in our lives. They show us things that we hold to be far too important that not related to the kingdom of God. They show us commands we have yet to obey, show us a level of worship that we have yet to render, an experience of grace we have yet to encounter, a love for others we haven't yet fulfilled. I love the story of Andrew Murray, South African Bible teacher, we're going back a little bit, 1895. He's suffering from a bad back. He had fallen and recuperating. He's living in a particular home. And while he was eating breakfast one particular morning in the room, the hostess comes to him and said, there's a woman downstairs who's in trouble and wanted if you'd, to know if you had any advice for her. Andrew Murray handed her a paper he had been writing on and said, let's give this to her. And here's what he said in the piece of paper. In time of trouble... Remind yourself, first, God brought me here. It is by his will I'm in this straight place, and in that I will rest. Number two, he will keep me here in his love and give me the grace for the trial to behave as his child. Then number three, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me grace and a means to follow him. And lastly, in his time, he will bring me out of this trial, high and when he alone knows Therefore say to her, I am here by God's appointment, in God's keeping, under his training, for his time. Folks, I couldn't write anything better over the corona crisis for the church or the child of God. We're here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. Because of time, I'm going to kind of jump over my third point, get to my fourth the third point would have been God repairs. God repairs. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids test the sons of men. 
The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked, the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. The future of the child of God is the refining fire. The future of the man or woman without Jesus Christ is the judgment fire. God loves the righteous, but he hates the wicked. I know we have to revise that little statement in the light of this. We often say God loves the sinner, hates the sin. Well, it says here he hates the wicked. The word hate means revulsion. I mean, if you love something, you'll hate something. If I love my wife, I hate the man that breaks into our home when I'm not there to do her harm. My love for her is put on display in my hatred of him. And my friend, God loves the righteous. And you see his love in the fact he hates the wicked, the wicked who hurt the upright. And the world who rebels against the Creator. Think about that. My friend, flee from the wrath to come. God's not a blob of jello. He loves and he hates and he moves and he rules and he judges. Here's the last thought. God rules, God reviews, God repairs, God rewards. I'll make this quick, but it's beautiful. Verse seven, where we read this, concerning the righteous. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. This compelling contrast, the valiant man God hates, but the righteous man who does righteous deeds God loves, and he intends to reward that man. The King James here has his countenance beholds the upright, but there is an equal rendering that actually flips that, and I like this rendering, the upright will behold his countenance, so the upright will see his face. Throughout the life we live, the righteous man seeks God and desires to know God better. Doesn't the psalmist express that? I want to dwell in your temple and behold your beauty. When we pray, when we read scripture, when we we worship together, we want to encounter God, we want to see God, we want to know God, and yet we realize because of the life we're in and our flesh that that is a mediated vision of God. There are barriers to that. Someday we will behold him face to face, but now we only know in part. But here's the promise, someday we will see him face to face. Psalm 17, 15 you know what? I will someday awaken his likeness and behold his face, and that will be my satisfaction. It's a beautiful thought. What the righteous man has got to look forward to is that someday he will be able to turn his face away from this sin-cursed planet, turn his face away from his own feelings, turn his face away from the sorrow and tears that mark human experience and the wickedness of man and turn his face toward God in an unmediated fashion and see God in all his glory. And when we see him, we will be satisfied. We need to look beyond the moment to that moment when we shall see his face. The face more than any part of the body expresses the whole person. It's one thing to hear a voice. It's another thing to see a face. That's the hope of the Christian. We'll see his face. We'll behold his beauty in that forever temple where there are pleasures and joys that are full and forevermore. Face to face is the real fellowship. You know, just recently I made a trip home to see my family. I came through the door 
And I bent down to kiss my aging mother, and she cupped her hands around my cheeks, and with a tear in her eye and a tremble in her voice, she said, it's good to see your face, son. That's what we're talking about, where we look beyond the horrors of the moment, and we look beyond our growing fears, and we look beyond the sorrow and the sadness that marks this life, and we anticipate that moment when there'll be no crying, no dying, and no sign for all things will be made new, and we will behold his face. And perhaps with those nail-scarred hands where he died for us on the cross, he'll cup our cheeks and say, it's good to see your face, son. It's good to see your face, daughter. My friend, fight or flight, put your trust in the Lord. Let him be your refuge, your resource, and your redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of the study of your word. Great peace of they that keep your law. We thank you for the Psalms. They not only speak to us, they speak for us. We thank you for this example of a godly man, a human heart, a real person in a real circumstance, tempted to flee, encouraged to panic, finding his feet. Lord, we thank you that you're on your throne in heaven. We thank you you're testing us. Help us to take the test and pass it. We thank you that someday you will serve justice and judgment in an act of love and holy rage. We pray for our friends and family who don't know Jesus Christ, that they would come to embrace him and know him who took that punishment for them. We thank you for the hope of heaven. This is the short and ugly life. We thank you for that life that lies ahead when we will behold your face. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, amen. That's Philip DeCourcy on Know the Truth with a powerful message reminding Christians that this world is not our home. We are bound for heaven. Today's message, titled Fight or Flight, is part of our Psalms of Trust series. You can listen to all the messages online at ktt.org. Rich with theology, the Psalms give us hope and comfort when life goes sideways. And at Know the Truth, we're committed to coming alongside you in good times and bad, in moments of joy and in times of trouble. We want to be here for you through all the seasons of life, and we're grateful to friends like you who make this possible. It's through the generous gifts of listeners that we're able to plan, produce, and distribute these messages on the radio, on the web, and on the Know the Truth app. Your generous donations help to keep these messages coming to your community, to people hungry for God's truth. And when you give a gift of $40 or more, you will receive a timely and practical companion resource to go along with our current series— the Psalms of Trust personal devotional booklet filled with sermon notes and study guides for each sermon this month. This devotional booklet will act as a personal guide to you as you delve into this encouraging series, and it also comes with direct online access to the series. Just call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And when you give a gift of any amount, we'll send you a book titled Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. Whether you're working through a season of sorrow or comforting others in theirs, this book will be an encouragement. Learn how God is still sovereign and good in times of loss and how it's possible to love Him more than you loved Him before. 
Again, call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. You can also send a check in the mail. Write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Be sure to return tomorrow when Philip DeCourcy begins a study of Psalm 23. Discover the power of God's presence and provision Wednesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free.